wonderful to see everyone. Um, <clears throat> when I go away for decent periods of time, I always feel like when I return, nothing's going to be here. <laughs> my, my place is, will have disappeared. Um, and I'm always quite amazed that it's still here. And uh, same is true, I think, for our Sangha. Um, being away, it's this sense of um, the place may be here, but nobody else is going to show up. And so here you are. You're actually here. And I could say the same about myself that, you know. I've shown up also. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of interesting uh, place to be in because you, you have a deeper appreciation of the fact that things really do appear out of nowhere. And in fact, having had a fire here at one many years ago, about six or seven years ago, this place could have disappeared. And all of you, I might never see, there are some people I'd never see again. Uh, so it, it is possible. So, for example, I'm always surprised, <laughs> having disappeared from this area, that you suddenly make an appearance. And I could say that for every single one of you. In some way, you could just disappear and... I never see you again, and that would be sad for me. Uh, but thank you for appearing and showing up. Um, so I'd like to share over the next couple of weeks some of my learnings from Japan. Uh, We read the instructions for sitting meditation uh, as our reading this morning, and Coben talked about his style of practice as having no rules. And that's a, a very unusual style of practice uh, for Buddhism generally. Uh, so in our lineage, the rules, might say we have forms, but we don't have rules. We don't have dogma. But this is not necessarily the case in all forms of Buddhism. And in Japan, I realize that there are an amazing number of forms of Buddhism, of Buddhist practice. And today I'd like to share the two ends of the spectrum of what I was experiencing in Japan. The first end of the spectrum would be a highly uh, organized, ritualized, and uh, very uh, detailed and rigorous form of practice. And on the other end of the scale, a a kind of formless practice. Um, the first end of the scale, which I was very honored to be able to participate in, uh, 
we we traveled to a place uh, called Mount Hie, which is the uh, known to be the source of all Buddhist sects uh, that have evolved in Japan. And the temple there was called Enryakuji Temple, and uh, Angyo has visited there, and it is the temple that does have the eternal flame in it. I did not get to witness that. Uh, I, I, my experience was uh, in another aspect of practice there. There is a, um, a very severe uh, practice for monks who are training at this temple. And they are actually called marathon monks because they go through an intensive seven-year training period. This, this regimen is called Kaihogyo. For the first three years, it's a seven-year practice period where they do not leave the temple for seven years. They have to stay on the mountain where this temple is located. And each year, they have to do in the evening a walking practice of circumnavigating the mountain. This is at night in straw sandals, uh, very hilly and rocky terrain. And they have to, it, it amounts to about two miles a day that they have to uh, navigate uh, for a hundred days every day. And they, they cannot miss a day. As a matter of fact, throughout the entire seven years of practice, they carry a knife um, and another weapon. I'm not sure, I forget what it is. But if they do not, if for some reason they fail, they give up, they have to kill themselves. And they, that has happened. So along all of these sacred spots that they have to stop at during their pilgrimage, uh, you see the remains of monks who have actually committed harakari uh, at, at those locations. So you might say it was a pretty, pretty demanding practice. So every year it get, they have to walk more, more and more miles. And by the end of seven years, they in effect have, according to their ritual, have traveled the circumference of the globe. They have traveled that many miles. And they, of course, keep have to keep replacing their sandals. Um, their feet are bloody. Um, it's at the seventh uh, at the seventh hundredth mile. They have to do a nine day complete fast, no sleeping, no eating, um, no going to the bathroom. <laughs> Uh, they have to and sit up straight. They have to. They can't sleep for nine days, 
And by the end, and of course they have their uh, teachers or their fellow monks, uh, one on either side of them to make sure that they don't, they don't fall asleep and they don't eat and they don't, it's just a complete uh, being present. They call this a living funeral that, and by the way, you can go onto YouTube and look up Marathon Monks and you can, you can actually see the visuals of their training. Uh, by the time nine days are over, they have, in effect, they have described it as they can't think, they, they, they feel like they're dead. Um, and they have to be escorted very slowly to a, a particular fountain and they have to gather water to offer to the god uh, who occupies the temple. And they're, they're just basically carried uh, because they're so weak. And uh, so it's obviously it's nothing like what, <laughs> like what we do here. <laughs> Um, at the end of this if they make it through and there have only been 46 monks in four centuries 46 who have made it and they're called living Buddhas of course I think we're all living Buddhas but they're considered national treasures They're, they're They've made it through this incredible training. I was extremely fortunate to to have met a woman in California who knew one of the one of these monks who was undergoing this training, and he was at the end of his training, his seven year training period. And she was invited to, when, when they complete this seven years, they are authorized to conduct what's called a fire ceremony. Uh, and it's a very, like Coben said, there, there are Buddhist sects and that have secret teachings, and I know the Tibetans also have secret teachings. Well, this is the Tendai sect of Buddhism, and they definitely have secret teachings. And only a certain number of people are allowed into this fire ceremony because this monk has achieved being, the status of being a living Buddha. And only certain privileged people are allowed to participate in the final stage of his training, which is this fire ceremony that he conducts in a very small uh, temple. Um, and I happened to connect up with this woman, uh, and she invited me and the, and the people I was with to attend this ceremony and to meet this monk. Wow. It's Never thought I would ever be in a position like that, but there it was. And 
we did attend this ceremony, and it's a ceremony of purification. And the monk was tending this enormous fire, which was indoors. Uh, But clearly he had magical, some kind of a magical, and I'm, I don't, I'm hearing myself say this, but I, I don't, I don't really believe it, but I do, because I saw it with my own eyes. I would never say anybody had magical powers, but this guy did, uh, and I don't know how he, he did it, how he managed this fire, and keep, <clears throat> kept feeding the fire, and just kept it just short of burning us all up. It was just really remarkable. So the, here it was, this amazing, and, and the chanting all the time, throughout the entire, it was about an hour ceremony, where we were, we were invited to um, inscribe uh, wishes or prayers <clears throat> on these wooden pallets that he kept feeding into the fire. There were hundreds of these uh, very thin slabs of wood that he was using to feed the fire. <clears throat> After this was all over, and this was in some sort of other realm, uh, we were invited to have tea with him. And that also was an amazing invitation, very, very rare to have such an opportunity. And so, of course, he didn't speak English, so he had a translator, and we were invited to ask him questions. And not very many people, there were about five or six of us there. And everyone was just sitting in awe of him and was very reluctant to ask any questions. But he was very, like, I'm nothing special. He was just very friendly and, and um, open and relaxed and didn't seem like anything you know, really authoritative in any way. So I had a question because our practice is I like to tell people to practice with ease. It's just practice with ease. It's don't, 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 uh, this is not an endurance test. But in his case, it seemed like it was an endurance test. And so my question was, why does practice have to be so hard? I was really, why, why do you have to do all of this, these rigorous, austere, severe uh, trainings? And that was passed along to him, translated to him. And his response to me was, What makes you think it was so hard? I'm still incredibly puzzled about that. That was a koan. I'm still wondering 
what does that mean? I mean, and one of my responses was, if he was completely present to every moment of his experience, it wasn't hard or easy. It was just this. I'm just walking today. And tomorrow, I'm, I'm not thinking about tomorrow. The sun comes up and, um, and, the, and the sun goes down and I start walking again. <laughs> I'm just doing this. It's, I mean, it was clearly to me, looking at it, it was real. I mean, even just coming on Sunday and sitting for a half an hour. <laughs> that's, that's hard to get up, get in your car and get over here and and thinking about seven years of all but so it was put back on me why do you think it's so hard that's my practice now is working with that that question why is it so hard so I don't I don't I don't want to suffer with this alone so I'm giving it to you also, <laughs> think about it. Why should I be the only one to <laughs> burdened by this? <clears throat> so we walk down, come down from the mountain. <clears throat> this is all these places are always up in the mountain on the mountain tops, and there is something. There is something about that. But the other side of the spectrum, and maybe there isn't a spectrum at all, was going to our home temple in uh, Kamo, Japan, Jokoji. That was completely different from the temple on Mount Hiei. It was in a small town, like Julianne. <laughs> um, it was the only temple there. Uh, it catered to lo- a local community. No visitors, no tourists like, like Mount Hiei. Nothing spectacular except the interior of the temple was spectacular. And... It was occupied by a family. The family of Coben's brother's son. Coben is our lineage holder. His father uh, ran the temple. He was the abbot. And then Coben, who is my lineage holder, is the lineage holder in our uh, uh, Phoenix Cloud lineage. Coben, who was the son, um, then his brother, when Coben died, his brother inherited the temple, and when his brother died, his son inherited the temple, and now Bune, who was Coben's um, nephew, is training his son to become the abbot of that temple. 
So it's kind of a family operation. Mm-hmm. And Bunet, who is the abbot, his wife lives there with him, and he has three children who live in the temple, and his mother lives in the temple, and his mother's sister lives in the temple. So they just live there. The kids go to school. Um, uh, the wife makes meals. They, have, they basically conduct funerals for the, for the town. People can come and offer prayers. Uh, people can come and meditate. It's, it's all a very open, kind of like a big, a big family house in which everybody can come in. There's no particular rule. Uh, you come in and you're served lunch. Um, it's very informal. Uh, and you're given the tour. Uh, and they just take care of the place. They just live there as a family. And during, uh, during the lunch, I asked Bune, do you ever get a chance to travel, to, I don't know, to go out and be entertained or go to concerts? He said, well, maybe once every 10 years I can go see my son's soccer game. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is a marathon monk. This is a monk who is not going through, you might say, the physical and psychological um, difficulties, obvious difficulties that these other marathon monks are going through. But there is a pilgrimage that he is taking. It has a different form. It involves different people, but it's a very deep form of practice. He is dedicated to taking care of this home and his family. And anyone who comes for any reason to be in the temple. So, I was led to consider the various forms that our various pilgrimages, each of us, is engaged in, we might say, a karmic journey, uh, a pilgrimage. Sometimes it takes the form of very severe, we may not, we may not be uh, engaging in endurance practices, but for example, if you're going through a difficult period in your life, like anxiety or depression or just difficulties with your work, and you stay with it, and you somehow endure, man, that's a marathon. Um, So our practice gives us the opportunity 
to make these demanding pilgrimages, even if it's a pilgrimage from State College or Bullsburg or uh, Tyrone or any, anywhere, Washington, D.C., to come to make that pilgrimage. And we make a pilgrimage every day. Every day we get up and we, have, we make a journey. And sometimes it's extremely demanding. But it's our practice. So it's, it now becomes a question of how, how do we manifest our practice? How do we engage our practice in, in our everyday life? It, that's, that's such a profound, fundamental question. We call it, some people call it engaged Buddhism. And, and sometimes we say, well, it's engaged Buddhism because we're volunteering to work in a prison or uh, we're volunteering at a senior center or at a, an animal rescue. or So we're engaged. We're engaging Buddhism. But we're engaging Buddhism every minute of every day in the people we meet in the, in the family relationships that we develop, in our friendships, uh, in our families, in our work, in our personal well-being. So, we live like, like a family in a temple. Can we regard our homes as temples. And not only, so we live as a family, like Bune lived in his temple. It was his home. Every day, had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. His kids went off to school. Uh, He and his wife obviously had a, a, a marital relationship. He was connected with his mother and his aunt. But he was living in a temple. And his life was governed by that atmosphere, that way of being, Buddhist practice. And then the enduring part, the, the, the Mount Hiei monks were also practicing in ways that we practice every day. When we feel like we just can't go, we can't do this one more time, <laughs> you know, I, I just can't do it, or uh, this is too much for me, or I'm overburdened, or whatever we feel we have to endure, there it is. Like, it feels like we're circumnavigating the globe. <laughs> so there are both, there are so many amazing aspects to Buddhist practice. And also, you know, so this is a temple. This is a temple. Um, Your home is a temple. The supermarket is a temple. The university is a temple. The prison is a temple. Your office is a temple. it's, It's a place where you you practice your life And you also practice some form of endurance, of being with 
difficulties of being with suffering. It's the joys and sorrows of, of our life. And this, which I'd like to talk about in the future, this body is a temple. This body is a temple which we need to take care of in the same way that we take care of a building, a grounds. So our temples are everywhere. Our places of practice are everywhere. And it's up to us to discover that and to engage it, you might say, to practice there, to practice there, to practice at home, to practice in the supermarket, to practice at the library, to practice in the concert hall, to practice at the stadium, to practice, you know, temple after temple after temple unfolds before us and make demands on us and also bring us great joy in the sense of just this is a family operation this is our sangha not just this I'm very thankful for but that and every being every being is our family and we need to find our way of practicing together with everyone. And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be like the monks on Hie mountain where it's very obvious they wear these white uh, uniforms. White is a symbol of death in, um, in Japanese culture. And it's about dying to your ordinary self. Uh, and getting, discovering your Buddha nature. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. It can be what, what Coben calls gorilla, gorilla zen. In other words, you practice devotedly, but in secret. You don't have to make a big deal of it. You don't have to be circumnavigating. Look what I've done. So it's like gorilla zen. Don't don't have to call attention to yourself. Practice in secret. And it's only you to figure out how to do that. How are we doing on time? I don't know. You don't know? (laughs) We're definitely...